Welcome to Kindred Media, a nonprofit initiative of Kindred World. Kindred has gathered thought leaders, researchers, and activists exploring the new story of the human family for over 15 years. Visit our website for our new story features, interviews, podcasts, and video collections at www.kindredmedia.org. Welcome to Kindred. This is Lisa Reagan, and today we continue Kindred's Black Men Breastfeeding and Social Justice series. You can visit Kindred's website to find more interviews, transcripts, and resources for equity, diversity, and inclusion education in this series. Today, I'm joined by two Wisdom Council members from Reaching Our Brothers Everywhere, Robe, Calvin Williams, who is join, joining us from Cincinnati, and Kevin Sherman in New Orleans. I'm also joined by Kindred Social Justice Editor, Dave Mettler, and Kindred's research student from the University of California in Santa Barbara, Reshma Graywall. You're invited to join our virtual campfire as we listen to Calvin and Kevin's stories of forging a new generative path to fatherhood and how this work connects breastfeeding and birth in the African-American community to social justice, reform, and education. So welcome everyone. Thank you, Lisa. And Thank you. Instead of reading off your bios, as I said, which are considerable, I'd really just rather hear your stories from you and how your backgrounds uh, you know, connect into the work that you're doing with Robe. So Calvin, maybe you wanna just uh, lead in with how did you get to where you are? It seems like your background has uh, prepared you for this work. Yes, um, <clears throat> actually it has. And I go all the way back to my father. Uh, I come from uh, a very poor family in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. My father uh, met and married my mother when she had five children from three other different men. None of those men were involved in uh, my stepbrothers and sisters' lives. My father was 48 years old when he had me. And uh, he and my mom broke up and I ended up I was one of the uh, only child to go with him. And I don't remember any conflict or struggle about that. That's what's so interesting. I just remember when he said, me and your mom are no longer gonna be together. I was just like, I'm with you. And um, that he set me up for the work that I'm doing by the way he uh, felt about me. And the way I, I describe it is he transmitted some things to me that uh, endure to this day. Um, I, I feel him deeply at all times and uh, in, in positive spirit form. And it was the experience of what he transmitted to me. And when I had my son, the process of becoming a father when my son was born, um, and then that set me up for, for the work I'm doing. So um, I uh, was working at a uh, Rally's restaurant. I was a manager at Rally's in Cincinnati back in the 90s, early 90s. And um, one of my cooks was involved with a, a little group and uh, in the Winton Terrace housing projects in Cincinnati. And because I was so compassionate and kind to this guy and helping him trying to advance himself in life, he said, man, come to our little group meeting in Winton Terrace. Now, Winton Terrace at that time was a, no uh, mincing words, it was a dangerous housing project, you know, crime-ridden, 
and all the all the earmarks of uh, public housing back in those days. And um, so I went to the meeting with him and there were drug dealers, unemployed men, uh, formerly incarcerated, people who were working, um, you know, just every stripe of man. And I started attending those meetings. And um, I just attended as a person who was in love with my people and I just wanted to be there and help. And it, was just, it wasn't even an organization, but uh, the gentlemen who were backing that group, who were helping it form and stay together, decided to make a formal organization. And at that time, I had a resume, at that point in my life, my resume was like, you know, six single lines of stuff, you know, not, not much on it at all, um, because I didn't go to college. And um, I put in my resume to become executive director of what became the Genesis Men's Program. And these men own national businesses. Uh, they were just um, altruistic and trying to help. And so they did, they did a national search like people of that ilk would do for uh, an executive director of their fledgling organization. And uh, lo and behold, they chose me. And that was it. That was the beginning of this whole journey uh, the Genesis Men's Program in Cincinnati. Uh, it was my first nonprofit social service experience. I was executive director, and uh, we had tremendous success. Uh, it was very heavily documented by the local news. It was just very, very successful, and that set me up for where I am today. So, Calvin, how did you end up becoming a lactation consultant? I'm not sure how many men there are right now uh, who are lactation consultants. And how does that play into your robe work? Well, in 2017, here in Cincinnati, I went to a breastfeeding forum at the University of Cincinnati. It was a one-day forum, and I was asked to spend 15 minutes talking about the fatherhood program in Cincinnati that I was connected to. I did some contract work for this program. And this just described the Talbert House Fatherhood Project. Uh, and also because at that time, uh, the Talbert House Fatherhood Project was starting to use um, curriculum that included thoughts about breastfeeding. So I did my little 15 minute talk, you know, no keynote, no, I just my little, I shared the podium with another person who had 15 minutes as well. And I was walking back to my seat and somebody touched my arm and I looked down, it was a lady and she said, you should come to Atlanta. And I'm like, okay, you know, and I, and I was sitting, I was sitting behind her. You know, when you're at con, people give you business cards. They say, we're going to do this. And you, you take it in good faith, but you never know. So I sat behind her and she said, uh, give me your business card. And I didn't have any business cards. So I scribbled my stuff on the back of one of hers. And I thought for me, that's like, oh, this is, this is a, a, a deal breaker. This guy's not even organized. Right. So, um, but sure enough, that was in May. I think, and then in June, I was in Atlanta with Reaching Our Sisters Everywhere at an infant mortality summit that they organized. So that was in June. Then in August, I was at the sixth annual uh, breastfeeding conference put on by Reaching Our Sisters Everywhere. And then in December, I was in Miami with Reaching Our Sisters Everywhere. So Kimmery Bug, the woman who touched my arm, uh, said, you should come to Atlanta. And that started this whole process. So at the breastfeeding conference in new orleans i was so blown away i'm in a room with 500 women ibclc's doulas 
CLCs, uh, peer counselors, just researchers. And I had never experienced that, you know? And so for three days, I'm, I'm soaking this in. I'm transformed, seriously. And uh, I wrote in the margin of my uh, note paper, I said, can a man be a CLC? And I shared that with Kimmery. And then about four, maybe five months later, she alerted me to a CLC training happening in Cincinnati. She provided a scholarship for me and paid for all the other, uh, the testing fee and everything. So I took the course and I passed the test. Lo and behold, CLC. I want to say something about, uh, I saw a, a picture of you with a t-shirt on that somebody you said in New Orleans had created for you that had a, <laughs> this is at your USB-C presentation. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about that. Okay, yeah. tell me about that t-shirt. Yeah, so I was actually in Linda Smith, and, and she's nationally and world-renowned in breastfeeding and safe sleep. I was sitting in her on her IBCLZ, IBCLC exam prep course. And I had one of the t-shirts with me, uh, what was local. So one day I went to the course and I said, I'm going to wear this t-shirt. The t-shirt was designed by Kevin Sherman. <laughs> so okay. Kevin yeah. Sherman, it was his idea, his creation and his design. <laughs> so I wore that t-shirt to the IBCLC class. And, you know, Kevin had the concept of the little football laces on a drop of fluid indicating breast milk. And it said breastfeeding is a team sport. And um, yeah, so that, that's the story behind the t-shirt. That is a great t-shirt. It's a bridge. It's a bridge to, you know, it may be a, um, a stereotype, but, you know, football men, there's the little football mm -hmm. thing, <laughs> little, mm -hmm. little stitching on, uh, as you said, on the droplet. And then uh, breastfeeding is a team sport. I yep. think that's just fantastic, though. That was really uh, a great T-shirt. I love that T-shirt. Yes. So, so how has it been being a lactation consultant and reaching men uh, with, is there, are there messages that help you? I, I, I've seen your presentations uh, on how you've gone into barbershops and, right. um, and a vegan farm in Mississippi. Um, how does that work out? Well, what happened when I became, fatherhood has been my passion for almost two decades up to that point. And it's my, it's my passion. It's my life's work. Um, and I'm, I'm just, I'm just so blessed to have been in that work. So when I became a CLC, my heart and my mind fused fatherhood and breastfeeding in service to the people and communities I care about. And I, I just made breastfeeding a part of fatherhood in me. And then started carrying that forward. Uh, and so because I was a CLC and a man, um, people started asking me to do uh, breastfeeding workshops for fathers. Or actually, I did more fathers and breastfeeding workshops for organizations and service providers. Um, and so I started developing and crafting messages. Again, everything starts with the heart uh, about breastfeeding. Uh, not only um, the, the benefits to children, the importance of it, uh, the benefits to the health of the mom, but I saw it as a, a healing medium for distressed families. Um, I saw it as a way for men to reacquire some of their humanity. I saw it as a way for uh, a man to uh, enter into the generative part of fathering. I'm I'm supporting breastfeeding is generative. Like my child is going to benefit from this for 40, 50, 60 years. So 
all that stuff started rolling around in me. And um, I just started, you know, blending the fatherhood uh, concepts and, and philosophies and ideas and research. And, I, and in the way my head works, I saw breastfeeding and everything, you know, so uh, I just started um, developing content and messages and, and that was it. Well, I think that your insight is remarkable that you put those pieces together. And I'm just going to, to uh, convey what I saw at the national conference when you spoke, and I hope I don't embarrass you. And then I'm going to turn this little piece right here over to Dave. And then, uh, because I know I want, I want him to be able to ask some questions about the social justice piece. Um, and then we're gonna go back to Kevin for his intro. Um, but. So when, when I was at the National uh, Breastfeeding Conference and Convention in Bethesda, Maryland last year, uh, same kind of room you're talking about, five or 600 right. people, very, um, uh, very passionate crowd. Although as I talked to Kim Marie and Laurel Wilson, who are on the board for USBC about uh, in the last few weeks, that conference has shifted in the last couple of years from being a predominantly white professional uh, oh, conference and organization to being this uh, incredibly dynamic. I mean, it just knocked my socks off to be there this this mm -hmm. past year. I was so impressed with the work that they've done and the and the energy in the room. But uh, I'll just for the benefit of the, of the listener, the story is I'd been at this conference for three days, and we're all tired, and the very last group of people to get up to speak. Um, are the rope guys uh, and and I'm sitting at my desk I'm doing things like you know, kind of packing up a little bit it's three o'clock on a Sunday afternoon my back is to the stage and I hear someone saying that they envision rivers of human milk flowing into the streets to wash away systems of oppression and my knees kind of went out a little bit because I had never heard anyone say that before. Mm -hmm. And then when I turned around and there is a stage full of men who were delivering this message, I, I just, I really, it just knocked, I just had to sit there. I was so, and I'm still very moved by the presentation that you all did, but this bridge and this link and this perception of breastfeeding as being this powerful and mm -hmm. this transformative was so uh, moving to me. So before we leave that story and leave you, I just wanted to give Dave a moment to um, do any more tie-ins. This is his area, the social justice piece. You're on mute, Dave. You're on. <laughs> I can hear you. Thanks, Lisa. Yeah. Um... Well, I'm really I'm struck by your story, Kelvin. I, I think the the piece where you you mentioned um, men reacquiring their humanity uh, through the the process of of really, you know, um, uh, getting involved in nurturing ways in in the family and and breastfeeding being really it seems like the the uh, main focus area at least that we've been talking about uh, so far. I just wonder um, if you could say more about that, about uh, socialization for men and, and why, why is there so much 
uh, that needs to be unlearned for men. Uh, that's that's just not been tr that's not true, and that even comes to your question of can a man be a CLC? Right. You know that that is actually at the root of why that question even needs to be asked. You know where where does the doubt, where does the fear, the um, the being, you know, not able to uh, have uh, the nurturing part of masculinity to to be oppressed or to to not be able to to have that part of of masculinity be expressed where where have you connected in with men around that socialization and how to change and how to start to unlearn some of what uh men have learned through through socialization yeah i think it's a it's a sad deal that uh men in this society get socialized the way they do and one thing i think about is you know there's no one masculine there are masculinities because there are more ways for a man to be a man than they're not. And I think I know my own process of um, healing and learning self-compassion uh, and self-care and self-love is a big part of that. Um, I learned there was more for me in my relationships and in my life, you know, changing my path to not uh, not working to be the quote unquote traditional the traditional masculine man, but um, it also came about in my work with men because my whole thing from the beginning has been I love the people I serve, and so because I love them, I'm listening to and feeling them and taking them in, um, and and I I experience the other parts of men who would who otherwise we would be wearing the masks and mm -hmm. so in, engaging with men and hearing i mean and that, that that's you know taking thousands and thousands of men in through the years i've been doing the fatherhood work i just see uh potential i have confidence in them i love them i see potential and i see that it makes it easier for me to see what we are up against in terms of this socialization so um that that's pretty much how i acquired it and uh, even in, um, I'm the co-author of a uh, fatherhood curriculum called On My Shoulders. And when we were writing that curriculum, I was so pleased that Prep Incorporated, the publisher, I was the fatherhood consultant on the curriculum development team, and they really listened to me a lot. And I said, you know, we need to have something in here about uh, manhood and masculinity. And so I wrote a unit called Free to Be. And the whole concept was men are free to be the type of man that they want to be. And so it wasn't, it was a, it was a unit where I created content uh, around unpacking and examining, not telling men what to do and who to be. Unpacking, examining, and then looking at the diverse range of manhood that's possible and available to people. And then also acknowledging for some men, traditional masculinity is the right fit. For, for whatever that means, but for a lot of men, and then we've been really thinking about boys getting socialized into that traditional masculinity, that's where it's really hard to see and to, and to, to stomach, right? When I'm in a grocery store one day and I hear a father uh, tell a boy, boy, stop crying. And I'm in, the, I'm in the other aisle, I can't see them. And I hear him say, boy, stop, I told you, stop that crying. And I'm not alarmed or anything, you know, I don't know, but I'm just hearing that. But a picture comes into your mind of a certain age of child. I go around the aisle, go around the corner, the kid's in a stroller. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, 
this, this, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. So we are all endowed with not only every emotion, but the physical, biological mechanisms to express those emotions, whether it's crying, shaking, laughing, hollering, yawning, whatever. And um, so, yeah, it's just really hard to see that with, with boys. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's, that's, that's how I got into that space. And, and just one follow-up to that is, I, I really wonder how um, uh, liberation for men can further li- liberation for women, just how they're, they're actually connected and, and ways in which, I mean, because there is historical privilege to, to being a, a man, but in, in, in the reality of the way oppression works, we're all oppressed by oppression in some way. It's, it's, there's a differential for how men experience it and have internalized oppression and how women are experiencing oppression within family roles as well. And I think some of the ideas that I saw off of the Robe website of men stepping up as teen players, is that how you articulate ways in which men actually are, are um, allies to women in supporting women's liberation as they step up to their roles in, in how they can support breastfeeding? Yes, one of the things that I'm very uh, careful about and pointed about is men supporting breastfeeding has to equal moms, women, maintaining their autonomy or even strengthening their autonomy. So I do see that as a, and you're absolutely right. If men are oppressed, women are oppressed, you know, oppression kind of works both ways in little circles and cycles. And so men supporting women breastfeeding help women maintain their autonomy um, and help women uh, actually do what's natural and good for them, which is going to build women up. And so I saw breastfeeding as an opportunity for men to really tamp down or maybe get rid of some of these oppressive ways, oppressive things that women have to deal with, especially uh, breastfeeding in public, right? You know, we want men to be comfortable and strong next to their woman breastfeeding in public. It's a huge statement. Um, so yeah, I definitely saw men supporting breastfeeding as, as a way to liberate themselves, but also, as you said, to uplift women uh, mm-hmm. in their lives. Yeah, thanks for sharing. Lisa? Yeah, Calvin, I, I just wanted to, we'll probably get this from uh, Wesley to put near this interview, but there's a, a little animated uh, video that just came out from Robe that shows how they are uh, training families to address issues of maternal morbidity is this team sport uh, mentality of going at what you're just, what you're talking about is, you know, so everyone, including fathers and men are trained as a part of this support system because of the high levels of maternal morbidity in uh, the black communities. And this uh, robe animated video in a very simple way, but very effective way shows the family who knows the mother saying, well, you know, she doesn't usually do this or wait, you know what? I don't think this is quite right for her. And so there's this whole other team of support and layer of support around the mother that includes the father and the other men that are in the family. Um, Do you want to just speak to that video for a second? Because we're going to try to get that near this interview. Yeah, that video uh, was put together by very talented folks who are connected to Rogue, and it it fits with uh, our mission 
as a uh, sister or brother program to reaching our sisters everywhere, right? So we need to stand up and support women in their breastfeeding journey and also take it to the next level because it is a social justice issue. We all know that maternal morbidity and mortality in the black community is a social justice issue. The, the, the disparities um, are ridiculous. And uh, I think educating men about that triggers, it, it, I've seen it trigger uh, men into new levels of understanding of what their role needs to be, especially in maternal and child health settings. That's just fantastic. Uh, thank you so much. And so now Kevin Sherman, who's been patiently waiting, <laughs> we'd love to hear your story of how did you arrive here at Robe? And, and it seems like your background as well has totally prepared you for the work that you're doing. Uh, first of all, uh, after, as you know, I'm from New Orleans, Louisiana, uh, grew up without a mother or father. Uh, at an early age, I, I, I invented to the crime street life. Uh, wound up going to prison at the age of 16 and spent 30 years of my life incarcerated. During my incarceration period, I began to educate myself uh, that it fought in the system and fought in people for my situation, I began to try to help other young men who was coming into prison who had a similar background of myself, not having a father, uh, not really having a support system. So as I, as I continue to do that work, I continue to look at the geographical and the color of the men that was coming in that was suffering from this, the same problem as me. So I just begin to understand all these men that was incarcerated, African-American men, 85% of them had kids that they had left in the street. So through the war them, uh, I was the first inmate in Louisiana one of the first inmates in the state of Louisiana that was trained on inside, outside dad. Uh, to give these men an understanding on who we really failed. And understand that we had failed our kids, we had failed our families. But when I looked at the overall picture, the number one bigger failure was the kids because the kid was left to fend for themselves. So as I begin to teach this curriculum and get men to understand and give men some, some empowerment and a sense of importance. Uh, so once I was released from prison after 30 years, this was my calling to help men bridge the gap with their children dispute what the situation was with the mother, uh, that the kids needed their father. So I began to volunteer my time doing this work, recruiting men, uh, talking to them about issues concerning 
them being a mainstay in the kid's life. And and a lot of times I was being enlightened at the same time. Cause I begin to understand that it wasn't the fact that these men didn't want to be fathers. The fact was they was ashamed that they couldn't take care of their kids. That they wasn't given a lot of the same opportunities that their counterparts to be able to make an honest living and take care of their kids. Uh, so this work became really personal to me because I come from that situation. Still a day, don't know my father. Uh, so I had the opportunity to speak at several, I was invited to speak at several conferences. Uh, and one of them, I attended a Rose Conference here in New Orleans. And a lot of people who had heard me speak before had brought it to uh, Mama Bug and Wesley them attention. So this particular conference, they had a setup for fathers for the for the do a little uh, open session, and I was invited to sit on that panel. And uh, the panel went great, so I was offered the opportunity to become a part of the Wisdom Council. Uh, and that was so t- to this date, to this date, one of the greatest honor for me coming from where I come from. Uh, a GED, self-educated, and and a bunch of brothers with PhDs, doctor's degrees, was welcoming me to become a part of something so great. It it at first I wanted to decline it because of fear, because I felt that I didn't fit in. But these brothers made me feel like their degrees and everything else wasn't more important what I had to offer. And this encouragement uh, allowed me to to make the decision to join this great team and do this great work. And and what I think that was so great with this team because as as Kelvin spoke, everybody's great in in in, 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 in in different areas. But when we all come together, we all can get on, on, on each other level on what we are dealing with. But I think before you can get African-American men to come in and understand and be supportive and understand breastfeeding and infant mortality and, and postpartum and all this, you got to first get them to understand how to be a father, how to be a dad, how to be that partner that's going to be there. Because if he's not willing to do none of that, then get him to understand other things is, is, is going to be very hard. So I take the role of really trying to get those fathers' attention so that my brothers on a wisdom conference can educate them to what, what the strengths are or the chance of this child having both parents plus a supportive father that support breastfeeding uh, and understand the infant mortality rate as it is on African-Americans being black women, being stressed out and so forth. So I think all this connection, it, 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 it gives me a sense of power 
And I'm I'm telling you, when I'm with these guys, I, I feel like one of the marvelous cartoons characters. Uh, they they really energize me because I understand from a disadvantaged point. I'm I understand from the communities that I come in that the resources that we usually talk about they're available, but they're not going to the community. So when a group of brothers talking about we taking this to the community, not worrying about the community coming to us, now you got me on board. Because my thing is that a lot of the men in the community are not going to come where you have to hear what you got to say. You have to go to them and bring your message. Uh, so with all these things coming together, it, it, it really gives me a great feeling that more men, like here in New Orleans, I have I have my group of guys who I meet with. They're very interested about want to know about breastfeeding now. They want to know about infant mortality rate. Uh, they want to know about postpartum. Uh, things that really people just assume that African-American men don't care about. Uh, Lisa, one of the, one of the, one of the, one of the biggest impacts of this work since I've been doing it and what made me understand that this work is needed and African-American men need verses is that I had a young man, 21 years old, that was in my fatherhood program uh, that was excited beyond measures that he was about to become a father for the first time. So what I usually do when, when these guys about to become fathers, I give them a, a sack with deodorant, tube, everything they need for overnight stay or whatever in the hospital. So he got his sack. He set it in the waiting room. He'd been in the waiting room at this time for over two and a half hours. The young lady who's delivering their child, she's in the back. This young lady, mother, sister, and auntie walked through the door. The nurse walked them straight back to the young lady. And this young black man, has, this young African-American man has been sitting in the waiting room for over two and a half hours. Because he had twists in his head. Unbeknown to the, the nurse who proceeded to do this unjust thing, this young man was a, a highly respected urinal student and basketball player. But he was being stereotyped that he didn't care that his fiance was in the back delivering his first child for the very first time. He was so excited, but when he called me, he was broken. He said, "Mr. Kevin, I don't, I don't, I don't want nothing to do with this. I'm done with it. The people don't even much acknowledge me, and he's crying. At that point, I stop what I'm doing, goes to the hospital, and let him know that the nurse is only doing what she's been told that's been going on for so long. But I told him." You can be the one that can stop this right now and make a difference. You can be the reason hospitals in New Orleans 
change the procedures and people understand that the most important person in the waiting room was you. Not the grandmother, not the auntie, not the sister, you. These are things that inspired me to do the work I do because I come from the same community. So now I became an advocate for these young men. And just the work I have dedicated my life to, because God have gave me another opportunity. So I don't take it lightly. Kevin, when we were at the National Breastfeeding Conference again last year, you also spoke on stage and you said something that I thought was profound because I, I don't think a lot of us as activists, especially in white activists in the past, have thought this way. And what you said was you thought the healers for your community were probably sitting in prison. What did you mean by that? Oh, because it a lot of times, a lot of these men go to prison and they, and they discover themselves and they discover uh, who they really are. And the ones that have the opportunity to come back in the community, uh, especially when we're talking about disadvantaged communities, they're heroes to a lot of these fathers because of who they was before they went to prison. So, like for instance, if something, if there's about to have a program or something in my com in, in my community, whoever trying to give that event, guess who they're going to come to when they want the young men there? They're going to come to me because I can go in the community. And get these young men to understand, hey, let's go hear what they got to say. It may be something that can be beneficial. And what happens, a lot of a lot of men that in prison are men that didn't have fathers themselves. They they don't know what it's like to have a father. So when when I say heroes, I'm talking about in the sense of Guys who want to be with, with so-called, unquote, street guys, these are the guys they look up to. So these are the guys that can touch their lives in a positive way if these guys has went to prison and rehabilitated themselves. I'm not talking about men, men Lisa, that go to prison and come back out with the same mentality they went in with. I'm talking about men who have really understood and accepted the mistakes of life and, and, and use that to come out to make other young men better, right? Many times, men that goes into the prison system, a lot of them come out bitter because they feel like the world owes them something. Those are not the men I'm talking about. I'm talking about the men that go in prison and say, hey, nobody put me in a situation but myself. 
Let me pull on my boots, do what I can do to educate myself. Because understand this, education I got in prison, it costs people, citizens, thousands and thousands of dollars to acquire. When I'm in prison, I get it free if I want it. So I took advantage of every program that I can get into. I'm a DTM and Toastmasters. Inside, outside, dad. I was taken to Washington, D.C. to be trained on it from the state of Louisiana. All, all these things, and I try to show society that there are good men that come from behind the walls. But what helps me and keeps me focused, and what I try to tell everybody that comes from that situation, I'm fortunate enough that I can pick up the phone and call a Kelvin. I can call a Wesley. I can call a Greg. I can call our doctors. I mean, I got a whole group of brothers that I can call whenever things not going well. So when, when, when we're talking about fathers, right, I have, a, I have a group of guys now that have no problem with their fiance whipping her breasts out right there with them and feeding the baby because through these brothers, I'm, I'm able to explain to these men the benefits of breastfeeding. I'm able to do that. I'm able, I'm able now to set in WIC clinics every week, go from WIC clinic to WIC clinic around the whole city of New Orleans, and sit in there and engage with dads that come through the door. Not, not trying to take anything from WIC, but get them to understand that the baby need natural. God designed that milk to come out that breast for a reason. And getting men to understand the significance of that, just what Robe has empowered me. Because before Robe and getting with these brothers and understanding this, I'm going to be honest. I, I, I found it very disgusting to see a woman rip her breasts out in public because I didn't understand. I was ignorant. And, 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 and and it's a shame to say a lot of hospitals are not educating African-American women and men on the benefits of breastfeeding when they're going to the hospital. That just like now, we're putting a, we're putting a video together because I understood it and I brought it to the Wisdom Council that we needed to make, we, as, as, as a group of brothers that are empowering and equipping men, we need the hospital don't do it we need to make up a toolkit make a videos explaining postpartum because many men come from the community i come from you ask them what postpartum is they're going to look at you crazy so here's a woman bleeding out and this guy don't know what to do because the hospital didn't explain to this man who's bringing a woman home who just had a baby what to look for signs that he should recognize to bring her back to the hospital call for help they just sent her home. Taking for granted these men know when they don't. 
and many women has lost their lives because these men is not educated on postpartum. So, so the Wisdom Council is putting together toolkits and videos, hoping that people will put them in the in 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 the, in the waiting areas in hospitals and clinics, so men can see it and understand the signs and recognize them so that woman can have a chance, that young lady can have a chance of living. But we 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 have to we have to get past thinking or not caring whether or not that this group of men should know when they don't. So you are able to reach men through trust. And it looks like when I talked to Kimmery Bug of Rose, she said they're, they're tackling the end of training, like that nurse in the hospital you're talking about that was oblivious to how important it was to find out who this young man is sitting there does he have someone that he needs to be back there supporting and being a part of this birth? Um, I mean, clearly the work is tremendous that needs to be done. But I just want to point out that you have the Rose group, the, the Reaching Our Sisters Everywhere and Robe, and this um, statement that you said from the stage about you know, the healers for the community are probably in prison. Uh, are be, are the ones who come out understanding and having insight into a community that probably can't come from anywhere else, can't engineer the trust uh, that is going to be needed to connect with them. Um, and I think I'm just going to stop here before I go any further because now I'm wandering into Dave's territory. So I'm going to let Dave uh, Mettler uh, take over. Are you unmuted, Dave? I appreciate the firepower of your story. And I feel, I mean, even over, um, over Zoom, I mean, I just feel a, a lot actually from, from everything you've shared. And I, I feel this, uh, the challenge of working across levels of change. I mean, that just comes up for me is there's institutional changes that need to happen that you identified. Um, and then there's also, uh, there's a personal responsibility that, you, you know, I remember from the breastfeeding, uh, a video that I watched before this talk about one of the greatest uh, needs is in, in advocating for uh, breastfeeding is confidence in breastfeeding and, and men as, as uh, you know, team members in actually supporting the confidence for women to breastfeed. And it seems like confidence to me comes up again, this conviction, this confidence within the, the personal domain for men, the family domain, um, where does that come from? I mean, how do, you, how do you teach that? How do you inspire that? And it seems like you're doing that. I mean, that's the, the work that it seems like you're called to do. Um, how, do how does that go? Um, with the, the men that you're working with? How does that confidence build? Because it seems like that's how change is happening. It's happening within individual hearts. Uh, and it's also, you know, trying to advocate for this, these institutional and societal changes as well. 
Oh, Dave, I always tell people it's easy, Dave, because what happens is that you have a you have a community of people that have been lied to all their life, Dave. So first going in, you have to do some control damage. But the thing is, they're willing to give you a chance. If one or two give you a chance, they're going to let the other ones know, hey, give him a chance. And once you get that chance, they, you got the bill on it. Because if you lose it, you'll never get it back. Right? This is why I refuse to pass out any flyers. I refuse to deliver any speech that whoever have given the event, they're giving me a fly. If this ain't what you're going to present and give to the people, then I'm not passing it out. Because the thing about it, when they come, they're not going to be looking at Dave. They're going to be looking at me. Because they may never see Dave, but I'm the one got them there based upon the flyer that you gave me. So, I'm, I'm I'm very cautious on who sends me in the community and what are they sending me for. So once you get that trust, you got to hold on to it, Dave, because we're talking about communities that's been lied to just to get signature on a piece of paper. People coming into and selling them promises. So they open up to you and here you do the same thing. Now it make hard for anybody that's coming behind you, Dave. Yeah. So yeah, I hear you. It, it feels uh, the the work that that you all are doing with Rogue with Rose as well. It it feels so um, based on trust and based on relationship and on trying to rebuild trust where trust has been broken. Uh, before, which is, is quite a challenge. Yeah, they are. They one thing for for I'm a speaker role. The work that we're trying to do is very hard because it's new to African American men because for so long they didn't think that that was a good thing to do. And not knowing that this is something that our ancestors did all their lives. They was midwives. They believe in the natural. So re-educating these young men and trying to get them to reconstruct their thinking and, and, and being even though you and the mother has differences, your support for her is still needed. Because you need to understand, Dave, you, people wonder why, okay, she only two months pregnant. What a dad. He's gone already. Right? So my job in my community, when, 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 when I'm doing outreach and I'm talking to a young lady that's pregnant, the first I'm asking, where's the father? When she tell me, uh, he don't want to be in the I said, well, give me his number. Give me his number. 
right? Let me reach out to him. So when, when she gave me the number, I called him. I asked him, could I meet with him? And I, I discussed, I shared my story of coming up without a father that led me to prison for 30 years because I looked it up to other men to be my fathers and they used me and led me straight to hell. So I asked these men, your kid has to be your wife. When your kid become your wife, nothing else get in the way. Regardless what, what's the difference that you're in the mom relationship ain't work. That's not the responsibility of the child. So they have to understand that. But when you don't have people educating these men on this, when you got men that saying F their kid because they don't understand why the baby mama put them on child support because she got three more kids with somebody else in order for her to get help for, for the other three, she got to put him on child support too when he takes care of his kids. So we have a system that creates friction too. So we have to, so what, 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 what Rome does when we meet, we try to find out what the resources at. How can we help? Can, like here in New Orleans, I bring the child support direct in. I need you to explain to these men why they're being put on child support when they're taking care of their kids. They're just not with the, the mother or the child for whatever reason. So these are the, these are the things that Dave, when we talk about social justice, you got to tell me what a justice in this at first. I have to see the justice in this. What a fadness that when a lot of systems, a lot of organizations who are dealing with mothers, not even much inquiring about the daddy. But you say you're about family. A family consists of a mother, child, and father. This is what I'm getting to understand here in the city of New Orleans. When I see a billboard, which they're changing now, they're, they're, they done took the ones down because I took it to the mayor's attention. When I see a billboard of a European family, I see a daddy, a mama, and a kid. When I see a billboard of African-American family, I see a mother and the kids. The dad nowhere in the picture. So if he don't see himself in the picture, he feel like he don't belongs there. The more he see himself in the picture, the more he feel like he belongs there. Mm-hmm. That's doing justice. Mm-hmm. So Kevin, uh, Reshma has been waiting for a chance to ask you a question. Is that all right, Reshma? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Yeah, hi. Um, I'm really appreciative for this opportunity to hear you guys' story, so thank you very much for that. Um, there's been a lot of talk about men and reaching men, and I'm curious as to how we start this conversation with kids. Um, it's really clear that families need to support each other and the youth need to be educated and be comfortable with having these conversations so they can empower each other and empower other women and mothers. So how do you reach the youth? Um, do you focus on adults with the hope that 
they carry on this work to the younger generations or do you have um, your own specific ways for reaching them or plans to do so? Oh, my, my, talk, my, my take to any young man or any man I reach is what I give to you, please give it to somebody else. If I help you, help somebody else. Oh, uh, that's my motto, and that's and that's why, when when I have a father group, I have twenty five to thirty guys in my group. Because, I I started out with two people, Rich, two men. And I incentivized each one of the men, that they didn't have no church. The next time they came through that door. They both better come through that door with two people, two men. They bet, they don't come through that door. But people have a problem. They say, you shouldn't have to incentivize people. When you got, when you got men that dedicate an hour of their, their time to you and don't even much have a job, don't even know how their bills going to get paid, but yet they come in and sit in your class for an hour, you can incentivize them to let them know, hey, I appreciate you. Because what a lot of organizations don't understand, without these men, you don't exist. So why not incentivize them to bring more men that you can reach? And I tell them, like I tell anybody, you can come down here and hold a class, Reese. I can bring, and you say, Kevin, I need 30 men. I'm going to bring you 30 men, but it's on you whether or not you're going to keep their attention, Rich. Whether you're talking their language or whether you're getting them to believe in what you're saying, can you sell your story to them? That's what's going to give you opportunity to build. That's what builds, especially when we're talking about communities that have been lied to and broken communities and and. And statistics say that 80% 80 of this neighborhood doesn't have fathers in the homes. So it's not hard. It's about if you get two, you teach those two what you know and get them to believe in what you are doing and the work you are doing. And they're going to become soldiers for you. But if you break the trust of those two men, you getting to do anything in the community going to be very hard because they're going to tell everybody you're a fake and you're a fraud. You're just like the rest of the people that came through. Does that make sense? Does it answer your question? Huh? Or you need Thank me to? So or you need more clarification? <laughs> no, that was great. Um, Calvin, do you have anything to add to that? Or? Yeah, I think Kevin hit it on the head. Um, it, you know, I think about the uh, underpinnings of the fatherhood field. Uh, I was there in the beginning, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s. And I've just started saying this publicly because I'm tired. Um, the underpinnings <laughs> of the fatherhood field are about, was about moralizing and racist tropes about responsibility. <laughs> Okay, the early fatherhood demonstration projects set out to answer one question, 
how can we get these poor, irresponsible black and brown men to play child support? That's what the multi-city demonstration projects were all about back in the 90s. And then in the literature, it's so funny to me, in the literature, as you, as you track the literature forward, it says, oh, and then we found out they care about their kids. <laughs> so what, what Kevin's talking about also exists in the underpinnings of the fatherhood field. And I have been asking the question of myself, and I'm starting to do it a little more out uh, loudly now is why why is fatherhood work so separate from social justice work i don't understand that don't one day i'm a whiteboard guy i think live create on the whiteboard one day and this was this was coming out of me man i'm not in control of this i wrote fathers capitalism and racism and i drew lines connecting all three and i just sat there and stared at it and said, you know what, something's happening here and I got to figure this out in a way that I can articulate it. So. Yeah. <laughs> Dave or Reshma, do you have any follow-up questions for Calvin or Kevin right now? <clears throat> so, no, that was really powerful. Thank you both. So I, I, I want to say that it sounds like we're going in the direction of talking about transgenerational trauma a bit um, and how our capitalistic culture and our, our white supremacy culture in America is, uh, is compounding uh, and driving a lot of this. I heard someone from stage, I don't know who it was, maybe it was Calvin, and I hate to keep referring to the conference, but you guys were so great <laughs> on that stage. I heard someone talking about being in a hospital with a, a mother while she was giving birth, and she began to have problems with birth, and um, Calvin, was it you? Who was it that was saying, talking about putting the community of people around her, putting their hands on her, and recognizing that what was happening was transgenerational trauma? what she was experiencing was that someone else i'm so yeah, that sorry was someone else. Yep. it was someone else but were, mm -hmm. do you remember that part that part too just to recognize the recognition now uh of transgenerational trauma um adverse childhood events <clears throat> is beginning to take off we have um nadine burke harris who wrote the book the deepest well about adverse childhood events who's now the the surgeon general for california and she's trying to bring this issue forward, but I think it's worth mentioning that when she tried to present to professionals at conferences about this issue, and she writes about this in her book, she said she was tuned out, people weren't listening, and then when she would go down to her table to put away her, her materials, it was the people who were cleaning up, the people who were, uh, you know, the, the workers there who were part of putting on the conference who came over to her and said, I really appreciate what you were saying. That was really incredible. That really spoke to me. And I uh, work with a field of people, uh, including activists and parents and professionals and researchers. And I hear this all the time, that there is a resistance to listening to stories, uh, even though we're, we're solid on the science now, about this transgenerational trauma piece. But the people who are receptive and understand it are the people who are affected by it in the, in the communities. They see it right away and are going, oh, yeah, yeah, wait, that's, I know what that is. Um, hey, 
You know what? Ta-Nehisi Coates uh, writes and talks about this. Um, he talks about how it is the responsibility from the president on down, governors, senators, all the way down through the, the hierarchy of the political and government chain. It is the responsibility of those people to maintain the racial status quo, right? It is their responsibility to hold on to and advance the story of racial uh, degradation for people, right? Including President Obama, right? He couldn't get past that, right? So what's happening is no nobody it, it, from a political standpoint has the the strength and the courage to break past that, right? And let me, you know, I got, I got his words right now. I got his exact words. They are the caretakers of our racist history. And that struck me because even, even President Obama, he couldn't cross that line. He couldn't say, this is horrible for black people. He has to hold that history, right, intact. Talk, you know, uh, the, what's the gentleman from, uh, was it Harvard, uh, went home and the cop, he's trying to get into his own door, cop arrests him and all that. What was that? Who was that? Oh, yeah. You know what uh, I'm talking about. Henry yeah, Louis Gates. Yeah, yeah. Henry Louis Gates. Yeah, right. yeah. And so President Obama's response is, let's bring the cop and Henry Louis Gates to the White House and have a beer. Right? President Obama, and I'm not, look, listen, I know people get all upset when you say anything about President Obama that's not a thousand percent, you know, but he couldn't say this is dead wrong, right? We need to be moving towards an anti-racist society. That's our only hope. Not integration, not recompense. I mean, we need to be working towards an anti-racist society. For, uh, for this nation to really, really grow. But we can't do it because everybody has to hold that racist history and keep it intact. And that's, and that's the same thing in the areas that we work in with fathers and breastfeeding. And that's why you can't, the, the funding for fatherhood, the funding, it's less so in maternal child health, but in the fatherhood field, the funding does not allow you to even address the underlying conditions, the disparities, the misrepresentation that puts fathers in these positions in the first place, right? The, the fatherhood field says, make them responsible. Make them do, I say they're already responsible. Get out of the way. Stop disinvesting in communities make sure jobs are available for people in their own communities. And so, you know, make the, make, make the culture and the environment uh, function in a way that their natural abilities to be responsible and caring and nurturing, and that it comes out. So that, that's, that's, a, that's a huge challenge, man. You know, we, we just, as a, as a society, man, we just won't let go of that racist past and, and try to envision a new day when we live in an anti-racist society. Well, and, this is and look, and fatherhood research around the world backs this up. 
Father, you know, the, the David Lamb, Michael Schwab, they've written a book, Fathering in Cultural Context. They back it all around the world. As economics go, so goes fathering. No, I, I hear you. I, I wonder, um, uh, this is a discussion that we've been having for a long time at Kindred on different levels, which is uh, how to shift a dominator society away from its uh, suicidal impulses and taking the whole species off a cliff. <laughs> and what uh, people like Rian Eisler, uh, who have written about is, it is a perception of what is power. So when I listen to the two of you present what you're doing, I see, as you said, Kevin, you guys are Marvel super, superheroes. You're, this is powerful, truly deeply powerful change that you're doing on the ground. Why is it not recognized as that? Well, because the people who are uh, that believe that they have certain kinds of power now uh, are, are not wanting to let go of that power. And unfortunately, a lot of that power is monetary. And what could be done, what could, if we were to redistribute uh, wealth and resources, especially in this country right now, is tremendous. But it is, it does to me, and I'm sorry to get on my little soapbox here, seem to be such a deep shift in the hearts of people that um, I don't see it happening on the scale we need it to. Uh, it, it just seems like we need more of you. <laughs> <laughs> we need more, more men to be trained in what you're doing. We need this to be uh, yeah, scalable and, and modeled everywhere. I've definitely uh, drifted over into David's territory. <laughs> David, what would you like to say about uh, this piece? Uh, well, um, I, I just was, my thoughts uh, from hearing what you're sharing, Kelvin, is um, I think par partially just feeling like there's a, a huge reckoning that uh, America has with its own history. I mean, just even being honest to uh, name and also deal with, I think, some of the darkness of the story of America. And, and uh, I feel like Obama and Trump's presidencies have given, I think, different challenges. I think of uh, Obama's as really inspiring. We are the leaders we've been waiting for. In some ways, it's a, a lack of, um, waiting for the higher ups to change everything because you almost see like oh democrat republican there there's so many overlaps and when you take power you take power over a country that has an incredible and and like dark history of its it has its foundation in white supremacy so it's yeah. it's yeah. it's a i think um acknowledgement and a understanding of that story but then also a feeling of and that story doesn't have to that, that story needs to needs to change um and that and that can be empowering with with actually feeling like the work that individuals are doing is going to be disruptive of that story uh like yourself and and like kevin and like the work that we're trying to do with kindred and it also takes institutional and societal change as well so we know that the power structures have to change it can't just be change on the you know on the ground and every individual is doing this change for themselves it's also i think the power of of community of collective action i just think you know right now with with the um the current crisis um with coronavirus i wonder if there if you know out of crisis there's some opportunity 
I wonder if there is an opportunity. I'm just thinking particularly here in Detroit, for example, uh, we have uh, some of the greatest racial disparities in the way in which coronavirus is impacting um, Detroiters. Um, but also there's been some like crazy things happening that I think social justice activists have been fighting for a long time to end water shutoffs, to end um, foreclosures on homes, uh, to, to really acknowledge and affirm uh, you know, how many people are struggling even to pay the bills on a, a week in which employment levels have not reached greater than 25% of, of the state's population. And I wonder if there, you know, I, I, I hear you. I wonder if um, there is a need to, to sit with that uh, and, and feel the, the reality of what you've named. And then also I wonder, you know, where is the opportunity, where's the hope? And, and where, do, where do each of us put our efforts to to change that oh yeah, kevin what do you got on that yeah oh dave and lisa oh I'm, I'm i'm glad lisa spoke of what she spoke of and i'm glad you just spoke of what you spoke of dave we can we can continue to talk about the past because it gives us some idea of how we get to where we're at, right? But we have to start holding all these groups and all these conferences we're going to and hearing these people talk about change. We have to start holding everybody at these conferences and who's coming into contact with each other accountable. If Because if we all come together, we can be the change that's needed. We can be that change. But what happens... The influences is, that's at the conferences, we hold great conversations. We share great ideas. But once we go our separate ways, we don't try to bridge the gap and come together, putting together a, 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 a community worldwide network of all these people who's concerned about these problems coming together from, from, from different parts of the world, coming together and meeting saying, Here's what we need to do. We understand what has been done. And if we keep dwelling on that, ain't nothing going to get done. We understand what has been done. How can we as a community national network team, how can we change things? How can we come together and write policies that will make a difference? Right? We, we, have, we have people like you and Lisa who can, who can broadcast these community networks to bring more people from around the world involved. We See, we can't wait on other people. And this is what I always tell my guys. You, you, we, can, we, can, we can talk about what's not being done, but over what are we doing? We're attending a lot of conferences. We're giving great speeches. But when we go our separate ways, we're not connecting. We're not sharing ideas from New Orleans to Washington, D.C. until we see each other at another conference. You know how many fathers we done lost, how many babies we done lost, how many mothers we done lost between a year, one conference this year, we'll go to the next conference to the next year. You know what difference that year would have made had we would have been connecting and networking as concerned people? This is why I get tired of meetings. 
That's why I refuse to attend a lot of meetings. I refuse to attend a lot of things because it's nothing but yap, 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 yap. Everybody want to sound good and look good, but when it's all over, nobody connecting to do this work. This We can make a change. We can change a lot of things that, that people keep saying can't be changed. I believe anything that's existing today, the group of people we have that existing today that didn't exist back then, we had a power to change things. We have lawyers. We have doctors. We have people from all walks of life that's a part of what we do. So you can't tell me we can't change things. If we all come together from an international standpoint and hold conferences about and, 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 and writing and, and presenting things, ideas on how we can change things. Is it going to be, a lot of people don't want to do things because everybody want to be the front runner. So that was creates a, a diversion amongst people trying to do things. I'm about to just get the work done. Whatever role I play, I'm cool with it. I just want to see a change. Where families can unite, babies can have better outcomes with both parents, and we'll see a we'll see a lot of less African American men in prison, in the graveyard. When you give a man, when you make a man feel important, you give him responsibility, he begin to live a different life. You got to give them a why. Each and every one of us have a why in our life while we get up and do what we do every day. We have a why. Even when you don't want to do it for yourself, you think about that one person or that reason you got to go do what you got to do. You think about that why you have to do what you have to do. And we got to think about why we do this work. Why do we do this work? And you got to be honest when you answer that why. A lot of people not answer, not honest when they answer that why they do this work. A lot of people not honest. And, and, and that's where the change comes from. That's because if, if we're waiting on politicians to just up and change what we're trying to do, We'll be in our graves and gone before it happens. We have to create the foundation and pray to God that we done made enough of leadway that if we're not here, we didn't educate enough of people to continue this work the way it's supposed to be done. Where every, where every young man and young woman and kid can go in the hospital and get the same treatment. Plain and simple. I understand the difference and I have a whole different world perspective. And I've seen uh, the difference in, in hospitals and, 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 and a lot of caretaking dealing with the COVID-19. I was in a hospital. I, I'm private insured, but I've seen people who come in there who wasn't get the sheet put over their head. 
because my doctor was 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 provident sure he's my doctor he's making sure everything i need but the man down in the next room from me he's not so he's not going to get as much attention as i'm getting he's not going to get the best equipment he need in the hospital that i'm getting because the doctor know if he write this five six thousand dollar bill to me he gonna get paid because i'm private insured so yes he gonna give me the best he got it's, it's it still exists and we can continue to continue to talk about who who can change it but we have a we have a group of people we have enough organizations that that claim they care about these issues that we have a, 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 a enough of power to create a national network that can come together, write policies, and change these situations. And we wouldn't be still talking about them. Lives would be touched and changed. That's what I wish. That's what I wish for. That's what I pray for. Calvin, do you have a... Yeah. Um, Dave, you, you asked where the hope is. Um, I see plenty of hope. Mm. I see plenty of hope. I see hope around the Wisdom Council, and I see that hope get ignited when we go into a city, right? When they see a Kevin and a me and a Wesley and Greg Long and Clifton Keenan, and when they see us interacting authentic, natural, and full of uh, vibrancy, based on love and compassion. I see how we touch people. I see hundreds and hundreds of people who are working towards these things we're talking about. They don't make the news. They don't make the newspaper, but you can read about them in color lines, (laughs) (laughs) which is one of my favorite mags. You can read about them in a lot of in a lot of publications. So I have a tremendous amount of hope. I love the young activist class that I am perceiving uh, and reading about around the country. And I think similar to Bacon's Rebellion in Virginia, sooner or later, there's gonna be this multiracial, multicultural throng who says no, no more. It's over. That's what I believe. And that's the hope that I run with every day. I believe that too, Calvin. I do. Do you have follow-ups, Dave or Reshma for Calvin or Kevin? I think, uh, Calvin, just your, when you talked about putting um, fatherhood capitalism, racism on the board and trying to draw the lines between them. I think that, you know, I've heard that when you, when you want to understand something, you try to try to change it. That's how you could really learn about how, you know, how, how uh, something works, how it, it is the way it is. And I think that the hardest things to change, I mean, things like capitalism, fatherhood, uh, racism, the interconnections between them, I think that there's some wisdom that Robe is bringing to the the significance of those, the changes that, that Robe and Rose are, are working towards. 
are the significance of those changes uh, because each of you brings your story, your authenticity, yeah. and your network together, the, collab the collective power, like you said, with, with young people, you know, as people come together around these types of uh, changes that, that you have hope to, to make, I think that that's where the, the power is. And that, that's what gives me hope too. So I appreciate that you shared that. And and Dave, we can have this conversation. Dave, and that's what's great about it. What's great about Robe is what I told you from the beginning, Ms. Lisa, is that the I don't I don't know whether or uh, how they really went about selecting we all had our meeting in Florida where we all came together, right? Uh but when they made this bold, this wisdom council. We got people picked from all walks of life, and you got educated men. You have doctors. You have lawyers. You have father practitioners. We have Dr. Bug, who's one of the top doctors in, in, in Georgia in his field, right? We have, we have this great group of men that can speak on any aspect that you want to talk about when we're talking about going, speaking to the mass of stuff that's taking place in the African-American communities that we need to make a change in. Uh, and, and one thing I'm grateful of, that, that now we, we have a, a friendship with you all that we can have a verse now. Because what happens is that a lot of people don't want to hear the truth, Dave. A lot of people don't want to hear the truth. That's why I tell people all the time, be mindful when you invite me to your conference. Because you're going to get me. You're not about to get nothing phony. You're not, about to, you're, you're not going to never see me walk to the podium with a piece of paper and read to you. Because it's coming from here. I'm giving the people what they want to hear. I'm not giving you something that, that I have to make up. I want to give you me. I want to give you all of me. So you can understand that and it be no misconception. So I'm grateful uh, that Ms. Lisa had the opportunity to be in the audience when we were speaking. And, and 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 we captured her attention and 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 and, and this great uh, friendship have developed and and now it gives robe a chance for people to hear this verse and understand that we just a group of men that are trying to do this work and make a difference we're trying to we're trying to truly make a difference and help right and people who are really trying to do this work, they will be more willing to, to work with Rose because we have a lot to offer, a lot to bring to the table, and the best thing about it is genuine. Yeah. And it's boots on the ground. When, when, when I go to Simpson, when I go to Hire, I'm not going to sit in the office, Kelvin, come in here, let's go here, let's go there. I'm boots on the ground. Same thing when he come here. 
It's boost on the ground. I want you to see how fathers are living, how fathers are being treated, what they have for fathers. I want you to understand because maybe you can help me to help these brothers. So this is what it's about. So they, you know, being a part of the Wisdom Council, we're 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 grateful for these opportunities. Uh and and, 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 and we're blessed that that you all took the time to want to do this with us so people can get to understand and learn more about Roe because the world going to know about Roe, the whole world will know sooner than later that we're a group of brothers that's that going to try to reach every brother around this world that we can. You know what? I have to add that and this is from our uh, amazing executive director, Wesley Bug, excuse me, G. Wesley Bug. <laughs> um, Wesley said one day, and it stuck with him, he said, you don't have to be black. You don't even have to be a man to be a brother. If you care about black infants dying, if you care about black maternal morbidity and mortality, you can be a brother. That's a fact. Well, can you tell us where to go? Let's have our readers uh, leave them with some resources. Where can they mm -hmm. find uh, you online? And where would you like for them to go to find the, the resources and to contact you? Mm -hmm. um, for me, it's, uh, you know, I have a, a website, LucianFamilies.com, L-U-C-I-A-N, Families.com. Um, you can check me out there. Obviously, I have a Facebook page. Um, also, my work with uh, Hamilton County, Ohio. Um, you can check that out at hcfathers.org, where we have a countywide fatherhood collaborative. Um, yeah, those are the places you can get at me. Okay. And the Robe website is breastfeeding. Robe? breastfeedingrobe.org that's correct that's correct All right. and i'll say this to what kevin said about the wisdom council i have a saying on the home page of my website and it's from a native american author and i borrowed it and it says the true test of kinship is not blood it's behavior and so this wisdom council behaves like a band of brothers so that's what makes us special it is a special group. I, I told you that, uh, again, that conference and seeing you all together and speak, I don't know how often you do that or where the next one's going to be since we're all kind of in a uh, quarantine mode. Uh, maybe you all could do Zoom conferences, but you were, um, the, your collaboration and your dynamics together was really moving. Uh, it, it was the best part of the conference. It really was, I say that without hesitation and not the least bit, um, you know, that's not an overstatement at all. So it was, it was just really moving. And as you said, Kevin, you, it was very clear that you were bringing your heart. And uh, I think that there is, that really inspires a lot of hope in people to, to see that, you know, 
we we haven't all been ground down and we're all exhausted. <laughs> I know I'm still here after 22 years of activism, people. So you can show up too. <laughs> you can do this. <laughs> hey, can I say something to you guys? Yeah. Thank you oh. for being allies. Thank you. Thank you, Calvin. I can't tell your story for you. I can only make a place at the table, like Kevin said, his place at the table is always here at Kindred. And yeah. I, I'm just thrilled that I, I was able to uh, discover you there. And I can't wait to see what else you all have. Your, the resources that you're coming out with are so helpful. And some of them, like the, the video is so very simple, but it's, uh, it really it illustrates for for me uh, this very practical way of working together again as a team and that's what it's going to take and for us to think that we're going to go off in isolation and figure this out as an intellectual process ourselves and then as you say kevin get together at a conference and present our intellectual findings that day is done um it was a uh, what, what i feel like is a white intellectual agenda that had its chance uh, we already know the science. We already know uh, what is uh, the purpose and necessity of breastfeeding in communities. It is a social justice issue, and that uh, is not the tactic that's going to get us where we're going. So I appreciate, as you said, the boots on the ground. That's it. Um, all right, Kevin, do you want people to reach you at the Robe website? Oh, yeah. Uh, Kevin Sherman at uh, Breastfeeding Robe. And I uh, and my my other email is Katie Sherman at nola.gov. Spell the nola. Oh uh, yeah, nola.gov. N o l n o l a. Okay, dot gov. That's like it sounds. Okay, yeah, great. Uh, uh, as you know, I'm I'm the fatherhood coordinator for the Healthy Startup New Orleans here. Okay, you know, I didn't read your bios at the beginning because I wanted you to just get into telling your stories. But yes, that's right, Kevin. Is, uh, uh, say it again. You're the director of the Healthy Start program. Oh, uh, uh, the father. I'm the fatherhood coordinator of, Sorry. of the Crescent City Dad. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so uh, I coordinate the, the Crescent City Dad's classes uh, here in New Orleans. Uh, I'm also a mentor for Catholic Charity Youth Program, and I also have my own youth organization where I take young kids uh, for a life-changing experience, not a scale straight, but an all-day uh, experience to Louisiana State Prison so guys can share their stories with them in hopes that these young people get it and make a life-changing decision. Mm. Wow, that sounds like the opposite of uh, scared straight. Mm. Just yeah, I don't. I, I I encourage I encourage all uh, scared straight. It's it's not a, it's not good. Uh, a lot of bad things that came out of scared straight programs because kids have to reestablish who they really are after you done took them in a prison and then punked them out when people were scared of them, now they got to, they'll wind up hurting somebody because now kids are people them seeing they're not who they possess to be. So now they got to prove this. Yeah, I, I'm that person and wind up hurting people. So I believe just bringing kids in, letting guys who truly 
than, than transforming prison. And I'm talking about uh, people whose mamas, lawyers, doctors, or uh, prominent people who have made mistakes in their lives and share a story with these young kids and hope that these kids will just take these these, these stories and, and make difference. Uh, a lot of kids have. Uh, it's, it, it, it's just that people have to understand that, and I, and I teach all my young kids this, nobody should want more for you than you want for yourself. And, and and that's just what I live by. And I tell them, if, if somebody wants something for you, you got to go harder than them. Don't let them want more for you than you want for yourself. That's, that get them that push. But I, I leave you with this, and I'm talking about in any kind of work we do, especially the work that we're doing now, and I always express this to my, 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 my wisdom council brothers, and I teach this to a lot of people who want to embark on fatherhood, dealing with youths or anything. Miss Lisa, you can't help me if you don't know me. Right. You, you can't just take, for instance, that because I live next door to Joy, my life is the same as Joy. So you can treat me and Joy the same. No. You have to get to know me to help me. You can't tell me you want to help me because my first question is you, how are you going to help me? You don't even know my story. You got, to, you got to hear my story, and then you can see how you can help me. How do you fit into my story? Because you may can't fit in, but after hearing my story, you may know the person that can. I can't help you with that, but Dave can Yeah, I, that's when you get to know a person. Try to envision what our culture would look like if we uh, decided that a, a real superpower would be that of listening. Good. <laughs> 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 Well, thank you so much. Don't hang up yet, everybody. I'm going to stop the recording. I'm going to tell our listeners that they can find the transcript for this call at kindredmedia.org. You can also look for a podcast to share on iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, and again, kindredmedia.org. And this is an ongoing series for right now. I don't know when we're going to stop at this point. We have a lot to talk about, but we have a couple more Robe members coming forward to uh, talk to us about their work. And I look forward to sharing these stories with you. So thank you very much for coming on the call.